This week, new frontiers in HIV treatment and bugs, drugs, duration. What's the duration of antibiotic treatment in community-acquired pneumonia? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Kieran Quinn, same as always, and I am your host, and I am a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Today I'm joined by a colleague of mine, his name is Jay Spiegel. He is a third year resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, a friend of mine, and has an interest in hematology. Jay, welcome to the first episode that you've been recorded for the rounds table. I hope you're happy to be here. Thank you for having me, I certainly am. It is a pleasure. Why don't we talk about the first article that I chose, which was the duration of antibiotic treatment in community-acquired pneumonia, a multi-center randomized clinical trial. It was published in JAMA Internal Medicine online July 25th, 2016. And Jay, the reason that I chose this article is twofold. One, I have a hard enough time as it is remembering the right bug for the right drug. And if I finally figure that out in any kind of infection, then I have to remember how long is appropriate for each situation. And those situations are different. So it usually means I have to look all three up. But this trial seemed to answer a question about making things shorter. Shorter is always easier to answer, and so that was of interest to me. The second is that pneumonia is extremely common, which means I have to look these things up even more often than other disease situations. So it's important to know about how long is appropriate to treat people with community-acquired pneumonia. Do you have experience treating patients with community-acquired pneumonia? I would say that that is one of the most common things we see in residencies. I also think this article is really relevant to our daily practice, so I'm glad you chose it. The bottom line for this article, for those of you who really don't want to listen beyond this point, is that in patients with community-acquired pneumonia of varying severity, five days of antibiotic therapy is as safe and effective as longer courses of treatment. That is an important statement, I think, to take away from this. Is that something you do already, Jay, with your patients, or do you do something different? We definitely try to get away with uh, going for shorter durations if we can. Something we see a lot, C. diff, has become quite a, a rising phenomenon for us. Anything that can shorten antibiotic exposure for our patients, I think, is a good thing. Talking about the potentially adverse effects of antibiotic treatment and the rates associated acquired C. difficile infection, which is a potentially life-threatening condition, whether that is linked to longer durations of antibiotics. Shortening antibiotics uh, can reduce that is also an important thing. That sort of segues into the overall importance of this article. I've already mentioned that community-acquired pneumonia is common. In the United States, there's an annual incidence of between 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 cases per year, so very, very, very common. We actually don't know the optimal duration of antibiotics. We seem to historically have split up our year into weeks that are seven days and arbitrarily as a consequence in design of many studies things are rooted on that schedule within seven days, 14 days, three months, who knows. But we don't know the optimal duration especially in pneumonia. We do know that if you treat pneumonia early and you step down the antibiotics from intravenous to oral when clinical stability is achieved, that's better. But for how long you should treat them in total, we don't know. 
The Infectious Disease Society of America recommends five days. This is based on a bunch of eggheads sitting around in a room who have expertise in this area and saying, this is what we think is the best. Although intuitively, people have a general feeling that longer is better. You're sort of safer if you have an antibiotic exposure for longer when you're sick with something that needs to be treated. But as you mentioned, Jay, already, antibiotics have side effects. And I think a lot of patients and sometimes physicians don't really appreciate the risks of antibiotics. They appear to be innocuous up front, but they can be actually quite deadly. Some have suggested that inappropriate prolonged use um, increases resistance patterns, and there's certainly some evidence around that. So I think it's an important article. It answers important questions that has multifaceted reasons and impacts in our overall care. Do you agree? I most definitely do. Okay, Karen, so why don't you tell us how the trial was organized? So this was a multi-center, non-inferiority, randomized, double-blinded control trial. Big mouthful, but basically a high-quality trial that was done in appropriate research methodological ways. And it was done at four centers in Spain. Asterix, one country, potentially different patterns there. 312 hospitalized patients with community-acquired pneumonia were treated with antibiotics, and the choice of those antibiotics were determined by the treating physician. They randomized patients with community-acquired pneumonia at day five to stop their antibiotics if clinical stability was met. And then the control group or comparator group duration of antibiotics was not stopped at five days, but rather determined by the treating physician, however long that treating physician thought was appropriate. So a very pragmatic design. And then the primary outcome were the rates of clinical success, and they measured those at day 10 and 30 post-diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. And there was two facets to what defined clinical success. There were signs of pneumonia, the usual types of things, fever, hypotension, tachycardia, tachypnea, or hypoxia. And then importantly, pneumonia symptoms, so how the patients felt, and they did that at days 5 and day 10. Yeah, I was actually wondering about the outcomes that they used with the pneumonia signs. Mm. I was under the impression that was how they enrolled them in the study True. itself. So that's how they enrolled them as well. So in order to make a diagnosis of pneumonia, you had to have one of those, you know, that, that would be the way we would normally diagnose pneumonia as well, in addition to an infiltrate on chest x-ray, so radiographically as well as clinically and potentially biochemically to be able to determine that you could stop the antibiotics on the fifth day for the intervention group, you had to have none of those pneumonia signs. So you didn't have a fever and you weren't otherwise displaying evidence that you were sick by your vital signs or your oxygen levels. Right. I actually thought those were kind of stringent as well. I mean, people could still be pretty sick and, and meet criteria to still be enrolled in the trial. So I thought that was an interesting point. For our listeners who don't necessarily see sick patients with pneumonia, how could you be sick with effectively normal vital signs? For example, like the respiratory rate they chose was 24. Mm. You know, you could still have a patient that's breathing 18 to 20 breaths a minute and still is not breathing normally. Right but meets criteria for clinical stability. That was something that I Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think it's a limitation of using hard objective criteria where medicine isn't always a hard objective science and you know, there's a lot of finesse to it. But I, I think we're sort of pigeonholed sometimes in research that you have to standardize things. And, but it's a good point. You know, there, you can have somebody who's still unwell. And I think maybe the, the inclusion of the pneumonia symptoms as well as part of the outcome measure was important as an additional piece of information to help determine if somebody was maybe not objectively sick, but subjectively felt really unwell. Sure. 
what were the strengths of the methodology that you thought? So I sort of embedded a lot of that as I went through the design, but just to sort of restate them in a much more digestible format. So this was a very pragmatic study design. Pragmatic being that it allows for a lot of very real-world practice in a very controlled setting, such as a research studies. For example, physicians were allowed to treat patients with whatever antibiotic they thought was appropriate uh, up front. And in the comparator group, they could choose to treat those patients for as long as they felt necessary. It really helps to maximize your generalizability to apply the findings afterwards if you try to reflect clinical practice as it actually is, as opposed to imposing artificial means of doing it. I really, really, really liked the inclusion of the subjective scoring for the outcome measure in addition to the objective signs of pneumonia. because. Too often in medicine, I think we focus on these objective measures. Patients, you're cured of your pneumonia, you don't have a fever, etc. But the patient still feels crappy. And so are they really cured or better, so to speak? Or we just think they're better on paper, but subjectively they're not better. So I really, really liked that. And then the last thing was that they included a measure of comorbidity. So they used the Charlson score in this case but also that they used a measure of their functional status using the CATS score, and it characterizes somebody's functional capability. And I think in a lot of patients that we see, one of the rate-limiting factors to getting somebody better or getting somebody out of hospital can be their functional limitation that can change very quickly from a reduced state coming in with pneumonia to a non-ambulatory state as a consequence of pneumonia and lying in bed for a couple of days. So I think it helps to enhance our overall understanding of who these patients are beyond, again, just some numbers about what is their gender and other diseases that they might have. So I thought that was a very positive aspect. And what did you think were maybe some of the weaknesses of the methods? So I think one of the drawbacks when you do such a pragmatic study design is you lose some of the sophistication of what we would call a traditional randomized control trial. It is a double-blinded trial up until the day that they're randomized at day five, which is not truly blinded anyways because nobody's assigned to a group at that point. But after day five, things become open because if the patient was randomized to the intervention group, then they weren't taking antibiotics anymore and they weren't continued on some sort of placebo to make them believe they were on an antibiotic. Whereas the other group, they were on antibiotics for as long as the physician wanted. So there was a, an unblinding which can introduce bias into a study. In this case, I almost thought it could be looked at almost as a strength because you could have maybe thought going into this that patients who are off antibiotics at five days might feel symptomatically worse and might report that they were actually feeling worse. Mm -hmm. So I think in that setting, if you find that the patients actually felt the same, Mm -hmm. then it might actually work to the strength of the study by saying they were unblinded to the fact that they had stopped quote unquote early and yet they still felt the same. Yeah, it's a good point. We're going to park that thought and come back to it in in a little later discussion because there appears to potentially be an effect on hospital readmission. We'll come back to that. One of the other things I wanted to talk about as far as one of the potential weaknesses, and, and again, you could flip it on its head and call it a potential strength, but they use the PSI, the pneumonia severity index, to classify the severity of the pneumonia that individuals had. And a large majority, about 60% of them, were mild to moderate pneumonia scores on the PSI. 
And the recommendations in a lot of those patients is you can actually treat them safely at home as an outpatient, whereas these patients were hospitalized. Although, so the flipping it on its head is that other pneumonia trials typically don't include more severe pneumonia. In this case, they did have about 40% of people had at least a pneumonia's a severity index score of class 4, which is fairly severe. It does need to be hospitalized. In one sense, the trial included sicker patients where other trials haven't. But in another sense, the majority of the patients were still patients who could be treated in an outpatient setting. And therefore, stopping antibiotics earlier in them would seem to be reasonable versus the sicker person. So that's just something to keep in mind. A lot of this is limiting your generalizability of the study. But it turned out, you know, as I mentioned, this was all done in Spain, albeit at four different centers. But 80% of the antibiotics that were used were actually quinolones, like moxifloxacin or levofloxacin. In the end, it kind of comes down to a trial of what's the safety of stopping fluoroquinolones in community-acquired pneumonia at five days. But by extension, you, you could probably get away with applying that to beta-lactams, plus or minus macrolides. There were some people who took those in this study. So what were the main findings of this study? Bottom line, discontinuation of antibiotics at five days for community-acquired pneumonia is non-inferior to prolonged duration. And 70% of the patients only took the antibiotics for five days, so it, it truly was what they had hoped to do in their design was achieved in their actual trial. I didn't mention that it was a non-inferior trial, uh, or didn't talk about it further, so to speak. So they were hoping to find no difference in the way that trials are designed. We've talked about this on previous episodes about non-inferiority. That was achieved. The control group, the comparator group, did take their antibiotics. They took about 10 days versus 5 days in the intervention group. So there was an appreciable difference in the length of antibiotics between the two groups. No mortality difference between them, however. About a 2% mortality in each group. So again, not a significantly severe in pneumonias that we're treating where people are dying from it. One of the other findings, though, that you had greater 30-day readmission rates actually for the control group. Yeah, that was interesting. Right? So kind of surprising. Like, why would somebody who's on antibiotics longer get readmitted? Any thoughts? Well, the question of whether they got something like C. diff or they got a complication from the antibiotics potentially would come to mind. Yeah, so it's a very logical conclusion. They actually didn't really talk about why they were readmitted, just that they were readmitted. There's no diagnoses given. I even looked in the supplementary material, it's not there. So their design was not to figure out why they were readmitted. But there did not appear to be more antibiotic-associated adverse events in the control group, like I would presume C. diff, you know, is one of those. So we can infer that they were not readmitted for C. diff or other things related to antibiotics. They were admitted for something else. We don't know what that is, unfortunately. This is where I wanted to come back to when I told you to park that thought. Patients were given a phone number after they were discharged from hospitals, part of the safety of this study, to make sure that they had access to health care if they needed. And the group who stopped antibiotics at five days called in to the study coordinators and you know, health care providers a lot more than the control group. And that's where the unblinding effect comes in. Those patients, I think understandably, are more nervous. They know that they're not being on antibiotics more, so they're calling in more, checking out every little symptom or concern and saying, should I come to the hospital? Should I come to the hospital? You know, a level-headed physician or nurse or healthcare provider on the other end could sort out from a symptom over the phone whether somebody needed to come in or not. In theory, you know, the, the readmission rates were lower because these patients were calling in more and then getting more reassurance from the research team. So there's an effect for unblinding your study 
that has affected the uh, some of the outcomes, albeit not the primary outcome, sure. but uh, but interesting. So lastly, if at ten days, if you looked at the the rates of clinical success, perhaps you know the most important thing we're trying to look at in this study, forty nine percent achieved clinical success in the intervention group and fifty six percent in the control group. That's a absolute risk reduction of seven point seven percent. Uh, or a number needed to treat of 13. It's not really applicable to sort of talk about number needed to treat in non-inferiority trials, but those are the differences between the groups as far as clinical success. And then at 30 days, you know, you had 89% in the control group versus 92% in the intervention group who achieved clinical success. I think the takeaway there is that there's no difference between those two. They weren't statistically significant. They were not statistically significant, so there actually is no real difference in the numbers. But also that, you know, in both groups, at 30 days, almost all the patients are better or cured from their pneumonia. So reassuring to know. Who would you say this study applies to? The typical person that you would take this data and apply to is a 65-year-old male who's a fully functioning individual at home, no functional limitations, either a current smoker or ex-smoker, with some risk factors for atherosclerotic coronary artery disease or vascular disease, who's admitted with moderate severity community-acquired pneumonia. It's people with good old-fashioned pneumonia, right? Nothing weird or wonderful about their pneumonia. Despite some of their smoking history, only 15% of the individuals had COPD. So you're not really worrying about any atypical bugs in in these individuals from emphysematous lung disease or otherwise. But then importantly, you got to remember... By atypicals there, you mean things like pseudomonas as opposed to the atypical Correct. bacteria. Correct, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a few other bugs that we don't have to yeah. talk to talk about right now. But also these are patients who are, they're not going to the ICU, right? This is not your very, very sick patient in the emergency department with, with a really bad pneumonia. And then it's also not patients who are immunocompromised and at risk for other bugs that are not the usual run-of-the-mill pneumonia bugs. So people with HIV or other immunocompromised states are excluded. And then patients not from nursing homes or long-term care facilities, or they haven't had recent exposure to the healthcare system, and this might be a healthcare-associated pneumonia, and that changes your biogram, whatever the bugs that your patients might have. So important to remember that. What are the main learning points that you would take from this article? We said it twice already. If you're treating a patient for pneumonia, the patient who fits into this trial, five days is enough. It's as safe and as effective as longer durations of antibiotics in the same setting, which is really mean to say, like, treat the patient, right? We talked a lot about objective numbers and objectifying patients from a numerical standpoint. But the treatment in this is really guided around the patient themselves and whether they had signs or symptoms of pneumonia. And when they didn't, you can stop therapy and care and you're fine. Almost all the patients actually had clinical stability at three days. Usually that meant that was the time that they were transitioned to oral antibiotics. And then they had two more days of treatment, either as an inpatient or an outpatient, and they were fine. But a lot of patients had symptoms at 10 days. So you can expect to tell your patient that you're better, you're cured of your pneumonia, but don't expect that you're going to be totally symptom-free by 10 days. Expect it closer to a month, then you'll be good. And then we talked a little bit about, you know, this is a fluoroquinolone trial, but there are some patients of sort of 10 to 15% who are on beta-lactams or beta-lactams and macrolides. And we know from a 2015 New England Journal study that isolated beta-lactams appear to be as effective and safe as 
a combination of beta-lactams and macrolides. So it's probably safe to get away with five days of beta-lactams in mild to moderate, in some cases more severe, community-acquired pneumonia. Does this change your practice? Because of the severity of pneumonia included in this study, and potentially it's just the center that I work at, but it's probably more suited to general practitioners as an outpatient setting or emergency room physicians who are looking after these mild, moderate pneumonias, which was the predominance of this study. But for the subset of hospitalized patients with pneumonia that I see that don't have other factors like the you know patients they excluded from this trial, then uh, I kind of t- treat patients with five days already. I've had some good mentoring along the way that sort of suggested that. But it definitely reaffirms that practice for me. So that's good. I'm happy about that. Anything else you wanted to ask or say about the article, Jay? No, I think you covered it. Okay, let's move on to the article that you chose for the week. So this is called Antiretroviral Therapy for the Prevention of HIV-1 Transmission, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, September 1st, 2016. And tell me, Jay, why did you choose this article? So I've been interested in you know, infectious disease since uh, I'm a med student, and I think HIV is kind of the infectious disease that kind of we always think about as affecting a lot of people and always presenting with weird and wonderful findings. And I think whenever we have a patient with HIV, we always have to look at them very closely to make sure we're not missing anything. So I think I've always been interested in that perspective. As the article itself mentions at the beginning, you know, even with all the progress that we've made in the treatment of HIV, and we really have made a lot of progress, there were still 2 million cases of HIV transmission in 2014, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah, 2 million people get this disease, right? And thankfully, it's not as deadly as disease it used to be, at least in resource-rich settings. Yeah. But that's a ton of people that are still getting this disease, so we need to do better in our prevention of it. And that's what this article is all about. For our listeners, what's the bottom line? What's the takeaway sentence, you know, that tells you, summarizes the whole thing? Okay, so the bottom line of this article is that in uh, couples where one person is HIV positive and the other is negative, early treatment of HIV prevented transmission to the rate of a 93% relative risk reduction. And how long did they follow these individuals for? These patients were followed for a median of five years. So a durable effect of preventing HIV transmission in these patients. Sounds like a very important finding, especially if there's 2 million infections per year. You sort of explained already in your choice of why you wanted to do this article, the importance. Just give our listeners a bit more perspective as well on sort of the burden of HIV over the past 30 years. So we've had 60 million infections worldwide. That's an insane amount for one disease. And that has resulted in 30 million deaths. Just an absolutely horrendous disease. And we've made sort of three major steps forward, to my knowledge. In 1996, they introduced combination antiretroviral therapy. That made a big deal in treating people with HIV-1. They did a big public campaign in 2002 in resource-poor settings, like developing countries, to help really tackle this problem, where it's a major problem. And then we've made major headway in reducing mother-to-child transmission, so it's barely a blip on the map if done in a very planned setting, so we're protecting the babies from being infected. But as you said, 2 million transmissions of this disease, so we got a lot of work to do. We can still do better. So tell me about how this trial was done, as briefly as you can, but uh, you know, obviously with important detail included. Sure. So this was a, a multi-center 
randomized open label trial. It was done in nine countries, I believe, across Africa, India, Thailand, Brazil, and the United States. And they enrolled 1,763 index participants, so those are patients who are HIV positive, to receive either early or delayed antiretroviral therapy. To be enrolled, you had to have a CD4 cam between 350 and 550. So if you were in the early ART group, you were started from the time that you were enrolled. You began ART treatment right away. But if you were in the delayed uh, ART group, you were not initiated on treatment until your CD4 count had dropped below 250 on at least two occasions, or the patient had an AIDS-defining illness, i.e. pneumocystis pneumonia. The primary outcome was linked infections. So along with the index participants, their partners were enrolled as well, and they were the patient that we were kind of looking for the outcome in. And that would be whether the index participant who was already infected with HIV transmitted their HIV to their partner. HIV is a blood test. If you test for the presence or absence of it, how do you test somebody if they have the same HIV? How do you know that? They did something called phylogenetic analysis, where they took the polymerase gene, so that is one of the main genes in the HIV genome, and they sequenced the index patient, so the patient, the partner, as well as unrelated patients in the trial itself, as well as reference patients. And through Bayesian analysis, so they basically analyzed to see how related they were. So they used the distance in their genomes, basically see, did it look like the index participants' genome most closely reflected what the the new patient's HIV looked like. So as I understand it, they looked at the quote-unquote fingerprint of the HIV that an individual had and tried to see if that same fingerprint for lack of a better term, was present in the infection of the partner. Is that yeah. a good way to boil it down? Okay. Thank you for simplifying. Very confusing. All right, so you said they looked at the outcome was the rates of genetically similar or identical HIV infection in their partners. Exactly. So they were looking for linked infections, and the assumption was that the index participant had transmitted their particular virus to their partner. You said this was in nine countries. It sounds like a a big trial. What were the strengths of its design and execution? As you pointed out, that's one of the biggest strengths. You know, um, the population with HIV in all these countries is different. They all have different cultural practices around sexual practice or drug use. So I think that it was very appropriate that it be done across the world so that we could see whether we were seeing the same transmission patterns in in every patient population. So I think that was very strong. And it's a very cool idea to try and track partner infection through the use of genetic analysis to basically see how the fingerprint of, of the HIV looks to kind of really get a good idea of how HIV is being transmitted in these populations. You could surmise your own trial design, which would not be nearly as sophisticated as this, by saying, okay, let's just take a cohort of people with HIV ask them who their sexual partners are or who they might share you know, needles with or other ways that the HIV might get transmitted, try to track those people down and figure out if their HIV is the same as the one that the person in your study gave them. 
but you can easily imagine all of the headaches and variability in a study and heterogeneity in a study like that. From a design standpoint, it's, it's a very sophisticated and smart idea in a way to design a big study across many different countries to figure out if what you're trying to do is truly working as opposed to not working, but that's just a limitation of your study design. So I, I agree, it's, it's a very interesting trial that we don't see very often in this kind of design. On the flip side of the strengths, anything that you thought stood out to you as a potential weakness or you know you would have done differently if you were in charge? I don't know whether I would have done it differently, but it was open label and I think that definitely can introduce some potential for bias in the sense of you don't know whether people would have conducted their sexual practice differently if they would have been on a sham mm-hmm. ART, but I don't think that that really undermines the study very much. For me, one of the only questions that I had was, and whether it's a weakness or not is hard to know, but the people that they've recruited in this trial who are willing to participate in this study themselves and their sexual partners, are they reflective of the people who are spreading HIV in their community? Or is this a very select population of people that doesn't really reflect, i.e., isn't generalizable to the grander scheme of trying to prevent HIV transmission? I think that question kind of, I would say, more affects, you know, whether we can implement the study. I think you could almost take this as kind of a proof of principle kind of approach that, you know, if we have patients with sexual partners and they take their ART, will they transmit it or not? You're definitely right. You're having a very motivated group of people here that are willing to submit themselves to this kind of a study. What we're kind of looking for here, I would think, is that we're looking for methods on a public scale, on a grand scale of can we reduce transmission. I think the next step is the step that you're addressing is now that we've found a way to reduce transmission, can we actually convince people that we need to implement what we found? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Thank you for that response. So what was the principal finding of this study? Did they prevent HIV transmission? So yeah, they did reduce infections. The exciting number is that there was a 93% relative risk reduction in linked infection. 93%, wow. Everybody should have ART therapy. Well, well, we'll get to that in a second, actually. But just to step back a little bit. So they followed people for a median of five years. And in the entire cohort, both early and late ART, they found that there were... 78 overall infection. So that's an annual incidence of 0.9%. You might say, well, that's really not very much. Only 0.9% a year. But mm, it, yeah, it's less impressive than 93%. Right. But I think, you know, if you're somebody with an HIV infected partner and you're 20 years old, if you stay with that partner for 20 years, that's a 1% risk per year. So that will mount uh, over good counterpoint. Time. Very good counterpoint. I'm convinced. Um, Any other interesting secondary outcomes that you wanted to talk about? I think it's important to take a step back and mention that they did an interim analysis about one year into the study, Mm. and they found that there was already a 97% relative risk reduction for early ART. And at that point, they actually offered ART to everybody in the study. Because it would be ethically unsound to put people at that increased risk of transmission without offering them? Is that... 
Yeah, 97% is kind of also a big wow number. Yeah, you so. can't really say carry on the trial if you have that big of a, th- of a thing. And I guess they just wanted to do the rest of it for the what they called the durability, right? The, did that 97% hold? I mean, it looks like it did. Right, so it, it came down to 93%, right. but still, it definitely held up over time. Some interesting secondary outcomes. They talked about baseline condom use. So uh, if people, and obviously this is patients self-reporting, so there's obviously an element of bias in that, but patients that reported 100% condom use versus less than that had a, a relative reduction in HIV transmission. Something else I found interesting was that the probability of transmission was higher if the index patient had a higher CD4 count. Hmm. So I, I think maybe that could play into perhaps a patient maybe feeling that they were, weren't quite as much at risk because they had a higher count. I'm not 100% sure. No, but, but you can imagine that situation, right? You know your number. You think maybe you're lower risk to transmit to your partner. Maybe you aren't as careful with your, your barrier protection, and unfortunately your partner gets infected as a consequence. That, that's, a, I think, a totally plausible uh, theory. And in multivariate analysis, both condom use and early ART was still quite significant. So they did actually look to see whether there was some interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't report what the actual rate of 100% condom use was, which mm-hmm. I, I maybe would have liked to see, but, yeah. but they did test for it in a multivariate analysis. Yeah. So many food for thought. With that in mind, what do you think the main learning points to take away from this study are for you know, the listeners trying to take this and apply it to their patients, apply it in clinical practice? The main takeaway is that early ART is a very important way that we can prevent HIV transmission. This study and some other studies actually led the World Health Organization in 2015 to recommend that a patient from diagnosis of HIV should actually be offered antiretroviral therapies. While at the beginning of this study that wasn't standard of care, Mm -hmm. now if you show up to an office and you're found to be infected with HIV, you will be recommended uh, to initiate ART. One is for this reason, but there's also benefits for the patient themselves. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I preceded my training a little bit, or I wasn't aware of it, at least early in my residency, that patients would be followed and then potentially offered treatment when things started to go awry, when the HIV really took effect. But a lot of things in medicine earlier is better. Um, And I guess we're getting, wrapping our head around that in the world of HIV from this study and others. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Um, okay, any, any other uh, comments about you know, learning points you wanted listeners to take away? An important thing is still that 30% of the infections were still unlinked. The assumption was that these infections occurred outside of the partner's sexual relationship. The authors mentioned themselves there's still a lot of work to be done on a public health level that really needs to be done to prevent transmission of HIV. But I think this is really an important step, and I think other things like PrEP therapy, you know, maybe all of these things combined will really maybe make the final push towards really reducing the rate of HIV transmission worldwide. Your point is very well taken that these types of diseases are so multifaceted in the reasons that they're so dispersed throughout our world, whether it's a cultural, socioeconomic, healthcare related, etc., that it's not just a single intervention that's going to fix the problem. And we've already seen it's taken at least three major interventions to make a difference. This is, I guess, the fourth. And there's lots of work to be done 
inside and outside of sort of medical research to tackle the problem of HIV. And I guess that's the, the bigger takeaway from this article, which, is, which has been a fascinating one to discuss. Okay, now for my favorite part of this show, the good stuff segment, where we talk about stuff that's catching your eye in the news uh, this week or recently in your life. Jay, what have you been reading about? I do love uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who's the author of The Emperor of All Maladies, which I actually read on my honeymoon. Hey, there you um, go. What a honeymoon read. Yeah, my wife's really happy about that. <laughs> anyway, I actually think he's a fantastic writer. He recently wrote two articles that I saw in The New Yorker. One is kind of the race of multiple labs to come up with any vaccine for Zika, hmm. talking about how multiple labs like the Beth Israel in Boston and Hopkins and, and Walter Reed are all trying to get together to come up with a vaccine both competing against each other and not. And I think it's a great read, particularly relevant to our current situation. The space race (laughs) of Zika vaccination. Who can be the frontier of Zika vaccination? That sounds like a great read. I didn't read that on my honeymoon, but maybe I'll read it on our next vacation together with my wife. Who knows? So I read about uh, an article that was on NPR, one of my favorite sites, and it's actually the, the... section of NPR called The Salt, What's on Your Plate. I've actually talked about food and culture and medicine before. And this one talks about when people ate people, the emergence of a strange disease. So what it comes down to is that they're talking about Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or CJD, this very deadly and transmissible disease amongst humans. And it's around the discovery, sort of one of these epidemiological tales of the study of Aboriginal populations in the highlands of Papua New Guinea in the 1930s, when Australian gold prospectors were in there, there was this very strange disease that would come about uh, what they called kuru, K-U-R-U, which means shivering or trembling. And they thought it was a consequence of the evil spirits being released from the individual that had died. And one of the most fascinating parts of it all is that the mothers, the sort of wise women of the villages would be the ones to eat the dead because they felt it was felt that they were the strongest that could give it a safe place to hold this you know spirit inside their body and tame it and then they were the ones who started to have this kuru disease and then occasionally children would have the disease because it was discovered that the mothers would would give pieces of the dead body to the children as a snack because uh, you know food was sometimes scarce or the children were there and they would just give them a little piece so kids would come sometimes get it it took a long time to figure out what this disease was, which we now know as Creutzfeldt-Jacobs disease. Really fascinating, dark tale, but interesting nonetheless. Anthropology, sociology, medicine, all in one, one spot. I'm shivering just thinking about it. <laughs> there it is. Well done, Jay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the rounds table this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really do hope you come back, but you don't tremble as much next time. Thanks, I. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.